Hello friends, uh, this is going to be our last uh, video recorded message. You can stay tuned and link up with the uh, audio recordings that will be made on Sunday mornings and posted as soon as we can. So as we come to the word, let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help as we look into the word and um, we need your help in order to inwardly digest it for it to uh, make change in our lives. So would you shape us by your Holy Spirit now, in Jesus' name. Although uh, Benjamin Franklin was hardly uh, what we could call a faithful Christian, he once joked that God heals and the physician takes the credit. It's not so much a comment on the practice of medicine and doctoring as it is on human nature and the modern confidence, modern 18th century and following, conf the confidence in human power and ability. It's, this is sometimes carried to an unbelievable extent. Right? The, the overnight disappearance of a cancer or the sudden restoration of a damaged organ are as likely to result in self-congratulation on the part of a doctor uh, or wonder at the power of modern medicine as, as in honor to God. I guess it shouldn't be surprising, though, because if you don't worship the Lord Jesus, you will worship some other God. Uh, not necessarily uh, a divinity, though. Whether in the form of yourself or some other thing that promises to save you, promises to keep you from suffering and death. And, Health and science are as good a gods, as good a options as any other, if you are not worshiping the Creator God. Well, our, our modern tendency to ignore the presence and the work of God should help us grapple with what is surely one of the most telling moments in human history, recorded in Exodus. Chapter 32, the Israelites make an idol. They do something so essentially human and embarrassing that even if the rest of the Hebrew record didn't affirm the truth of these events, which it does and comments on them, the text itself is self-verifying. What I mean is the incident is so dishonoring, it's so embarrassing for the people that no nation would make this up about their ancestors. This would be the kind of thing you would want to um, suppress and quiet. But let's consider the moment. As we saw several weeks ago, uh, God called the whole nation to come near as he descended to the top of Mount Sinai. The mountaintop was uh, completely absorbed in smoke and fire. The whole mountain quaked and the people trembled. A trumpet blast from the heavenlies grew louder and louder until God spoke. And from that consuming fire, God spoke the Ten Commandments. And then he gave them a civil law code, a way that they could live together in his peace, in relationship to him and to each other. Moses wrote it all down and he read it to the people. And he gave his he gave his covenant. God gave his covenant. The people confirmed this covenant through sacrifice. And they swore 
all that the Lord has said, we will do. That was the covenant. And then God called Moses, Aaron and his sons, and 70 leaders of the family clans to come further up the mountain. And there they saw a visible revelation, a, a manifestation of God and His glory. For a week, His glory was a, a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And then He called Moses up to receive the commandments written with His own hand on tablets of stone and to, to receive instructions for how to, to live with Him, how it could be possible that this holy God could live with them. For seven chapters of Exodus, after that call up, God expresses his commitment to Israel. Seven chapters of how he's going to live with them uh, in a tabernacle and how he will bless them and how he will give them rest and restoration as they are with him. And while God is talking this, he's talking love, he's talking restoration, down the mountain, the people are doing what comes naturally to them. You know the story. Probably heard it since childhood in some form or another. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down the mountain, they come to Aaron and they say, Come up, make us gods that shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron gathers their gold earrings and he fashions a golden calf. And the people praise the calf and they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron then makes an altar and he declares that the next day will be a feast to the Lord, the great I Am. So on the following day, their worship includes sacrifice and feasting, followed by sexual license singing, dancing, right up until the moment when Moses appears with his face burning like a candle and holding the tablets of stone written with God's own hand. That is an awkward moment. You're back. There's a lot going on here. Before we begin to unpack it, let's remember that throughout this moment from from the time they've come out of Egypt, before they've come out of Egypt, the Lord has known how it's going to unfold. He's the sovereign God. He's outside of time. He knows how this is going. Even when he calls Moses up, even as he's telling his intentions and his commitment, he knows of the evil that's going on in the valley. Remember, these are simultaneous that's happening. So what is it that happens in these Israelites? We know the facts, but what's really happening? What's really going on? I don't think we need to look beyond the details that are given here that we're told to get the primary message. One could speculate, but there's enough to go on here. What's so difficult to swallow, I think, and it causes us to shake our heads and imagine that we would be different. If we were in that position, we would be different, is that they swing so radically. We look at this and say, they have seen 10 plagues demonstrating God's power. 
They've just seen his glory. They've just tremblingly committed to a covenant with him. As the heavenlies are open and they're interacting with this holy God, his consuming fire at that moment is right there on the top of the mountain. The cloud and the fire that have guided them, that have moved them around the desert, are there on the mountain. And lest we forget, I think it's easy to forget, bread is still showing up every morning. Manna, sustaining them. And there's that spring of water that's flowing from the foot of the mountain. It is is so incredibly stupid, so stubbornly rebellious that we would never do anything like this. We would never, we could just never imagine it. So how could it happen? Verse 1 of chapter 32 speaks volumes. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, when the people saw that Moses delayed, they're having to wait. And as they wait, some of them are bored. They're sitting in the desert. As they wait, some want the good things that God has promised them. He's described a way of life. He's described a civil code that um, sounds excellent. They want to go ahead. They want to be in the land, he's promised. They want to get moving. But God has created this moment of waiting. They didn't stumble into this moment of waiting. God made the moment. He made them to have to wait on him. The grumbling people here, they point at Moses. They say, This Moses, we don't know where he's gone. He seems to have disappeared, but it's really God that they're waiting on. What they experience here is basically human. We hate waiting. You and I hate waiting, especially in positions of vulnerability or dependence. And coming out of Egypt, the Israelites have been dependent on the will of God to direct move them. When he says it's time to go, that's when they go. They are moment by moment dependent, dependent uh, on the food that they eat. But God's presence here has withdrawn from the immediacy and is with them. And he's gone up on the mountain. So God gives them a moment to decide who and what they are going to trust. Where's their faith going to be? They have the law that Moses wrote down. He wrote it and is there. They have designated authorities. When Moses goes up, he says, Aaron and Hur are with you. The 70 leaders of the clans are there. These who have looked on the glory of God, but they don't want to wait. They want to move. They want gods to go before them. Particularly, they want gods who will move when they decide to move. Because if you make the God yourself, it's subject to you. These are are gods that are made and they will follow the will of the people. So when the people want to move, the gods move. They might even go through a charade of saying the gods have told them to move. So first, they don't want to wait on God and the problem of waiting reveals what they desire. 
This problem of waiting reveals what's going on inside where their faith is. This is true of us. We don't want to wait on God. And when we have to wait, our desires are revealed as well. You might take a moment and think about a time when you had to wait uh, and you found yourself becoming aware of what you wanted. Well, second, what they desire is independence from the Creator. That's like fallen man everywhere. Independence. He's too mighty. He's good. And this almighty God with them means they have to yield to him. They have to be shaped. If he's there in his goodness, they have to be shaped by that. And that is not what they want. They want independence. And their actions in the discomfort of waiting show what they want. They want idols that can be managed. Deep down, that's what humans want and have always wanted, control. This is the fallen self. It's what we've always wanted, control. To reject dependence on God, to reject obedience to His Word, is to claim control. It doesn't matter what point in history we're talking about, what revealed Word. To reject dependence on God and His Word is to claim control. It was the sin of the garden, and it's been present in, an, in every sin since. It's part of every sin. Control. So they ask for gods. And Aaron knows what they want. He's like them. He knows what they want. He knows that when people are in the discomfort of waiting, they want a God that they can control. And that God... The one that they craft, the one that they trust, will always be familiar. So this golden calf that Aaron crafts, it's a familiar part of Egyptian religion. As I've taught in other sermons, uh, Egyptian deity was fluid, the, the concept of deity. So uh, while a calf was the primary symbol of the fertility god Apis, they might also worship the, the god Ptah through a calf as well. So uh, at some periods, uh, one god would rise in prominence and sort of gobble up or absorb the rituals that were connected with other gods. So the point is, the calf is familiar. It's a fertility symbol. Uh, and the practice of merging worship of different gods is familiar, and that's what takes place here. The worship that Aaron directs for the, for the day of their rituals, it combines the rites that Moses had commanded uh, for the, the day of the covenant. There were sacrifices and peace offerings. That's what happens on this day. Uh, but it combined that with the fertility worship of Egypt, the singing, the dancing, the sex. So by the way, the term when you see in your Bible, they rose up to play, that's the standard use euphemism for sex acts. Now, obviously, they're breaking the first four commandments that God has just given them, commandments they just confirmed and committed to a week before. 
when they said, we will do all the Lord has said. But familiar idolatry, familiar sin, familiar control, it's so much easier than obedience. Just default to what's familiar, to what you can control. It's easier, but it's also what they really want. And we, we can't forget that. It is what they want. The pains of dependence and the pains of waiting reveal the desires of the heart. For moderns like us, our idols would look different. Um, perhaps you are like me. Uh, when I consider my own heart and where my flesh goes when I'm pained uh, or when, when I'm in a position of waiting and di the discomfort of having to trust, the idol that I'm tempted by looks a lot like me. I mean, it is me. It's a version of me. In fact, it is a particular imagined version of myself. And yes, it's covered in gold because it's supremely valuable, this version of me. It's me without flaw. It admired, competent in everything, just good at everything, um, successful in every pursuit, praised by everyone uh, who can recognize my worth. And that imagined me. Again, when I'm in that position of waiting, that's who I'm going to, to try to honor. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to shape the circumstances to honor this idol. And that imagined me has no needs. A friend to all, but no need for friendship. Knowledgeable in everything. No need for other wisdom. Most importantly, though, this, that image of myself doesn't need to wait on God, doesn't need to depend on God or trust God. He looks pious, but he has no weaknesses, and so no need for God. That's my fallen self. That's what I'm like without the Holy Spirit. I don't want to trust God. I don't want to have to depend on God. And you have an idol, too. I don't care who's listening, you have an idol too. Yours might be a version of you as well. It might be the you who's a perfect parent or perfect spouse uh, and admired by your peers for something, maybe even for your brilliant parenting. Uh, your opinion, it's always cool, always cutting edge, but also wise and gentle. Or your idol might be a version of you who's mastered a, a craft or a skill or a career so that everyone who's involved with that seeks you to guide them. You're supremely competent. It's also possible that your temptation is to make an idol of some, not, not you personally, but some picture of family life or a social role or a particular relationship. It's uh, common to idolize what a marriage could be like. But the common feature, this is the takeaway here of this moment, the common feature of idolatry is control rather than surrender. Because you don't have to wait when you're worshiping an idol. You can pursue its honor. You can pursue uh, that good.
independence rather than dependence, you know best rather than yielding to what the Word calls best. We all have an idol that has been formed over time in times of fear, in times of waiting, times of discomfort. But because you belong to Jesus, no idol can own you. And none can save you. You've already been saved. You've been bought. You've been redeemed. We belong to our God, to the Lord Jesus. Yet, in times of trouble and especially of waiting, we're often tempted to seek it rather than the God who saves, rather than the God who has bought us. Because the idol offers the illusion of control. Well, as God was teaching through this moment, the human tendency to idolatry and to reject his rule lands us in judgment. The Israelites make themselves worthy of destruction here. That is their position, worthy of destruction. And so God pronounces justice. God can only say the right thing, the true thing. And the right thing is the destruction of this nation that's rebelled against the God they stand right before and they declare they want to be, they want a different God. That's justice that they should be dealt with. But through the, through the weeks that Moses has been with God, he has come to know God. It's not that Moses is exceptionally brilliant, we don't know, but he's been in the presence of the Lord and God has shaped him so that he knows what the right is. Yes, it is right that Israel be judged. It is right they be destroyed. But Moses also knows that God is always willing to give mercy. It is his character to have mercy, that God wants to offer mercy. So not because there's any reason for it in the people, any goodness or attractiveness in them, but because it's his character and he wants, God wants that character to be known. He wants the world to know what he's really like. And so Moses asks accordingly. He says, verse 12, the Egyptians will get your character wrong. They'll think you, you've brought us out here just to slay us. And verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses pleads the character of God. But something further, something further shown. Being in the presence of the Lord, Moses knows that sin has to be dealt with. God desires mercy. He is just. And he desires that his character be known. And sin has to be dealt with. When people demand death, when life has been offered, death must be given. Or we might say, the people summoned Satan. So even though God won't destroy the people, he's, he's agreed, no, I won't destroy them. 
Moses sees that the chaos has been unleashed. And I think that recognition is what explains two other actions that happen here in this, in this moment. Moses calls for violence to restore order. Uh, he, he calls, who's with me? And the Levites come and 3,000 men are killed. It's an attempt to cut off uh, unrestraint, to cut off chaos, or um, to deal with the death that has been called. And this is Moses' initiative because he recognizes sin has to be dealt with. But the other action is that Moses says, verse 30, you've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And to the Lord, he says, when he goes up, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He's asking for atonement. Moses goes up to be the atoning sacrifice. He goes up expecting he's going to take me. And he'll spare them. The people have sinned. They deserve death. Take me instead. Moses recognizes that there must be an atonement for sin. For God to be merciful. For God to forgive offense against him. There has to be atonement. No, the Lord says, there is a day of punishment. I will go with this people, but there is a day when rebellion against God will be dealt with. Moses has felt it right. He's heard it right. He's discerned it. Moses sensed it. He has the right idea, but it would be Jesus. It would be God himself who would take death for all, including this wayward people. And if not, if Jesus didn't, then all would be blotted from the book. So let's, let's praise our God. Let's praise God that he has he saved us from the stupidity of our idolatry. The idolatry that we would naturally fall into, crazy as it is, crazy as it's shown before us in the scriptures here, we would do the same. We do the same. Let's thank him that when we turn from him to trust something that can't save or to lay hold of control, uh, that, that's for our destruction. He doesn't give us the destruction we demand. Let's praise Him because He offers grace. He waits. He waits and He waits and He offers us grace. Lord, um, I pray that Your Spirit would be shaping us, Your people, so that uh, when You lead us into moments that invite us to trust you, to truly be dependent on you, that you would so help us by your grace that we would turn from our idols and we would trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.